What does utopia mean today in the 21st century in the face of a climate catastrophe? And thinking about the fact that we have to reimagine our living spaces and the built environment writ large because of its the, the carbon footprint of this industry. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the McGill International Review podcast. I am your host, Andrew Way, and today we will be discussing how city planning has adapted and evolved in response to the climate crisis. Urban design is an incredibly interdisciplinary and wide-encompassing field. Designing a city intersects with everything from architecture and civil engineering to sociology and policymaking. In today's episode, we will examine how all these different aspects of urban geography have responded to the challenges of climate change and sustainability. We are so lucky to be joined by an excellent scholar in the study of geography and sustainability, Alize Carrere. Alize is a researcher, a filmmaker, National Geographic explorer, and currently a PhD candidate at the University of Miami. Alize's PhD research revolves around how cities adapt to climate change and the rise of aspirational city-making plans from architects and urban planners, or what she's terming climatopias in her research. Her studies about how humans are adapting to face the threat of climate change is incredibly relevant and insightful. And also, Alize is a graduate of McGill. I really hope you all enjoyed this podcast episode. Thank you so much for joining us on the McGill International Review podcast. Yeah, it's my pleasure to be here. So to start, can you maybe just quickly introduce yourself and uh, your area of study to our MIR audience? Yeah, so my name is Alize Carrere. I am currently a PhD candidate at the University of Miami, and my research focuses on the intersection of climate change, architecture, and utopian studies. So this is kind of an unusual combination of fields, but I'm really looking at the rise of utopian thinking and planning for the climate crisis as it pertains specifically to architecture and urban planning and the built environment. From your research and experience, it is clear that you know you have a clear passion about cities and their interactions with people and policies and the environment. So what kind of drew you to your interest in geography? Yeah, this is a great question. Um, I have always been really fascinated by people and the environments we create and shape. And so geography obviously is a field that dives deep into this relationship through all of the different dimensions of, of human activity. So whether that's transportation or agriculture, um, you know, our, our food systems, our uh, economies. And so for me, looking at how humans impact the environment and then in turn how the environment kind of transforms and adapts to some of our own presence um, is, is a dynamic relationship that has really intrigued me for a long time. And obviously recognizing that there's a lot of problems um, with that relationship and how we we live our lives on this planet. Um, and, you know, in, in pursuit of solutions and opportunities to change those systems, that's definitely something I've been focused on for uh, quite some time. Mm -hmm, for sure. And likewise, I think it is so interesting to look at urban geography and one of the concepts in the study of urban geography that I find most fascinating are the idea of master plan cities. So first off, what are master plan cities and kind of how has the design of master plan cities responded to uh, to climate change? Yeah, so master plan cities are essentially kind of predetermined city planning ideas that get put in place um, rather than letting a city kind of organically evolve and grow over time. I think master plan cities, we've seen them much more commonly in the last 60 years or so. 
Um, and I think a lot of it came out of the master planned community movement, which was very typical in the 20th century, kind of as a as a way of countering some of the ills of urban sprawl and the challenges that people were experiencing in urban areas. And so master plan communities became really popular in, in, you know, the mid 20th century. I mean, take, for example, um, a lot of people don't know this, but uh, Epcot, Disney's Epcot stands for Experimental Prototype Community of Tomorrow. And Epcot was not the theme park. It was not designed to be the theme park that it is today. But when Disney, as somebody who was a master planner, this was his vision for cities and communities of the future. And he unfortunately passed away before Epcot turned into what he had envisioned it to be, but it was really going to be a pro prototype community that would experiment with new forms of autonomous transportation and, you know, as a counter to urban sprawl and thinking about how to kind of live densely in these mixed use areas. So that's just one example that I give because it's such a, a, a popular one. We all kind of know Epcot, but a lot of people don't know the history behind it. But these types of master planned communities that existed throughout you know, the 20th century, and of course today, there's plenty of, of master planned communities, retirement homes, they tend to be um, you know, 55 plus, you see them in a lot of different places, but now we're starting to see them um, with much more intentionality around uh, sustainability and um, and growing in scale. So not just communities, but full-blown cities. Um, so master plan cities are really an, an attempt to predetermine certain boundaries and plans and organizations of human life and not let that just be up to a natural order in some way. So I think that we're seeing a lot of them specifically in relation to climate change, thinking about adaptation, thinking about cities that are vulnerable to climate change. Can we design cities that are floating? Can we design cities that are, um, you know, a little bit more resistant to certain effects of climate change, like extreme heat or uh, drought, or thinking about water usage, thinking about transportation, of course, and our energy consumption. So there's a rise of master plan cities and other kind of community oriented projects across the world, not just in, in certain places, I mean, really across the African continent, across Asia, across Europe and the United States. So there's um there's a lot to be seen out there right now as it as it pertains to climate change. I had no idea about the uh, the Epcot's role in kind of this entire scholarship uh, field, and that's very interesting. Yeah. Um, the idea of master plan cities being designed from the ground up, like from the get go, to kind of respond to these sustainability challenges, is something that we're see starting to see the rise of in urban geography. Would you say that master plan cities have been mostly successful in implementing these sustainable like sustainable practices, or have there been challenges in the way of making cities that are meant to be sustainable? I think there are definitely some pretty serious challenges, um, in part because what makes a city a city is its people and how life plays out in these organic ways. And sometimes what I, I fear with these master plan cities is that they um, fail to account for that very human, lively, dynamic element um, that that gives us the spaces that so many of us love and care for today as when we think of our favorite urban areas. As it relates to climate change, I think that there's a long way to go still, because one of the big parts of this conversation that needs to be brought to the fore, um, I mean, it is in certain circles, but I think, you know, we need to be talking about it uh, more broadly is the notion of operational carbon versus um, embodied carbon. And this is something around the sustainability movement that is really huge in the built environment. Um, we have 
operational carbon is like, what is, what is the energy foot or what is the carbon footprint of a building when it's operating, once it's up and running? That's one thing. But then if you account for all of the carbon emissions that have been created to, to, uh, you know, create those materials in the first place, specifically concrete and steel. And then on top of that, just the general construction process, then you think about the carbon footprint of our built environment and certainly of these master planned projects and you're, it's, it's astronomical. And so these are questions around sustainability that I'm really interested in. And I think we, we, you know, need to be really careful about how people are portraying certain places and city making projects as sustainable when they may only be focusing on the operational component of the building and not this really, really important kind of beginning of the cycle. And frankly, the, the, the latter half as well. So what happens with that building once it's done, once we're done with mm-hmm. using it in that capacity, do we tear it down? Do we rebuild? Do we retrofit? Do we come up with some kind of an adaptive reuse plan? So these are all the questions around master plan cities that really intrigue me. And I also think that we have gotten away from building for the long term. We tend to be mm. a little short-sighted in our building practices today. And um, we just aren't building cities that are going to last hundreds and hundreds of years the same way um, we might have in the past. And that to me is a big part of, of sustainability is this intergenerational longevity, um, you know, intergenerational component and the longevity of these of these spaces. Yeah, maybe on paper, it seems like building a city from scratch, planning ahead is a good idea, but in practice, it may kind of get in the way of just the fundamental idea of what a city is. So I think that's definitely a very interesting um, intersection between design and sustainability. And on that topic, can you just talk a bit more about your research and kind of what that deals with in terms of uh, geography and uh, sustainability and climate change? Yeah, so my research, as I mentioned, sits at this nexus of climate change architecture and utopian studies. And that has culminated in this concept that I'm working on in my dissertation called climatopia. So I'm putting forward this this term climatopia right now as a way to describe the rise of utopian thinking and planning in architecture and urban design, again, specifically as it relates to the climate crisis. And this concept for me is not just, it's not, there's not just one example that really kind of embodies what a climatopia is. It's really a spectrum because it ranges from the Saudi Giga projects in the desert, like something like Neom or the line, which many people have been hearing about in the, in the news, all the way to the other side, which might include a housing cooperative made of mass timber in Barcelona, um, which is a project that I was actually just visiting a couple weeks ago in, in Spain. So the idea of climatopia is looking at what does utopia mean today in the 21st century in the face of a of, of a climate catastrophe and thinking about the fact that we have to reimagine our living spaces and the built environment writ large because of its the, the carbon footprint of this industry. Um, so climatopias are really this broad um, spectrum of projects that could range from anything at the kind of individual building scale all the way to a master planned city. And in my work, I'm evaluating and trying to make sense of this landscape of projects that is rapidly rising because that we're seeing a lot of architects and real estate developers and engineers and even high net worth individuals starting to engage with climate data. And rightly so, we need we need people thinking about this. The questions I'm asking in my research are focused around whether are those the best ways to think about and reimagine our future, knowing that novelty 
is very appealing and we get drawn to these projects that are flashy and beautifully rendered. But the question I'm always asking is, is that the best way forward? So Climatopia is, is kind of a critical analysis of the rise of you know floating cities and these verdant skyscrapers and bioclimatic design, which are all really valuable tools in our toolbox. It's just a question of how are we over-indexing on certain projects, you know, and forgetting about others that may be just as, if not even more effective. And so it's really for me a question of of, of balancing these different uh components or criteria of these projects and trying to make sense of them right now to to draw some important conclusions about what might be some of the best paths forward. So that's the the focus of the climatopia research I'm doing now. Mm -hmm, definitely. And that's that's such an interesting and fascinating intersection of scholarship to kind of to occupy. And I'm wondering when you say uh, questioning whether something's the best way forward, the best method to kind of tackle these issues, what would you say are the marks of success when it comes to climatopias? And what does a kind of a successful climatopia look like? Yeah, great question. So I've spent a lot of time thinking about this and trying to pull apart projects that are very, you know, lots of layers, you know, you have to remember a lot of these climatopia projects have huge PR dollars put into them. And so it's kind of hard to untangle some of the, the work behind the flashy images and projects that are being advertised out there. Um, and a lot of the time I don't have a ton of data to be working with because I'm just working with what's available publicly, or if I can get access to some of the teams behind these projects, um, I, I try, but it's not always possible. So the main criteria that I'm looking at when I'm evaluating these climatopias are effectiveness, justice, and feasibility. So effectiveness is looking at, is it doing the job it's saying it's doing? And that's where that concept of operational versus embodied carbon becomes really important because it's saying, you know, is it is is it actually a carbon neutral city or is it only a carbon neutral city once it's operate you know once it's up and running is it accounting for the full life cycle of the building is it effective in that are we trying to do something novel and fun and flashy when we know there are better ways of doing the same that are you know perhaps a little less sexy but just as effective if not more um so that that's kind of the effectiveness criteria the other one is justice which is really looking at for whom are these projects designed who is at the table in their design? Are they participatory? Are they inclusive? Are they accessible? Are they made um, available to the people who need them most? Like, are we designing floating cities for the happy few to live off offshore somewhere in a, you know, kind of high tech floating platform? Or are we really thinking about people who are getting displaced by sea level rise or other extreme climate hazards and don't have anywhere to go and don't have many resources in the first place. So these are the types of questions that are account, I account for in the justice category or justice criteria. And then the third one is feasibility, which is, do we have the tools to and technology or the means today to do what this plan is proposing to do? And this is actually really important because this is, gets at the kind of utopianness of the project. Like how utopian is it? Is it something we can do today or is this something that we will need technology for in the next 30 years? And there's some that are a little bit in between. There are some that are completely feasible today. And then there are some that do require some advanced um, technology in the future to finish. So these the, the projects that are scoring the highest are ones that tend to be participatory in the design process, are ones that are, like I said, more inclusive in terms of who's at the table, who's invited into these projects in the first place. Um, and I think the other ones 
that are really striking to me are ones that consider alternative ownership models. So how do we think about ownership in a capitalist world today, where a lot of people are pushed out of certain systems and will never have access to certain housing opportunities, um, and certainly housing ownership opportunities? Are there ways to think about climate resilient, affordable, and accessible housing that is not just for some people to buy their way out of out of vulnerability or risk, but rather really thinking about people who need that support the most right now. So those are some of the projects that are so those are some of the criteria rather that I'm I'm interested in for evaluating some of the the kind of more successful, if you will, climatopia projects. Mm-hmm, yeah, it definitely makes a lot of sense. And I think one of the things that you're talking about that I think I find to be the most interesting is kind of the idea of does utopia mean the same thing for everyone of are we designing these cities for the people or is it being designed for developers or politics or geo, uh, or governments? Because at the end of the day, it's about the people who are living in the cities, about the inhabitants that are being affected directly by the policies that are being enacted by climatopias, right? Exactly. No, it's such a good point. It's And that's a big part of this research is climatopia for home, right? Because mm-hmm. one person's utopia can be another person's dystopia. And that's what's so fascinating about the concept of utopia. And I, I I couldn't have picked a more polarizing word to design a dissertation around. Utopia is such a fraught <laughs> word in many ways, because, you know, a lot of people say, well, it doesn't even exist. How can you talk about it in relation to the built environment? You know, by definition, the word utopia means no place. It's, mm. it's a no place, but it, it's a pun because um, in Greek, the same the similar sounding word utopos means the good place. So Mm. utopia is the ideal place, but also one which does not exist. Mm. And so there's a lot of um, kind of inherent contradiction to talking about utopia in any physical form when many people say it's, it's an aspiration. It's something that we can't make today. But if you look at some of the early writings on utopia that came out of the you know, 16th and 17th centuries, including the original utopia text by Sir Thomas More, the British statesman. It was written as a take on another society that was in stark contrast to the to the feudal system of Britain in the day. So that's a really fascinating starting point when we talk about utopia. It was about a redistribution of wealth and power and making sure that it, wealth was not concentrated in in a in the hands of a few uh, landholders, but rather spread across society. And so I really adhere to some of these early definitions of utopia as uh, exercises in imagining a society that is more equal. And that's why I like in using the word climatopia, it's not using utopia as a negative or just as this kind of techno-utopian fantasy for the few. It's really how can we think about equitable spaces and places and opportunities in designing for the climate crisis? And that's where climatopia at its core for me, this is where this research was born. And I think that tension between kind of top-down planning and local inhabitants is just such a very apparent uh, issue that's come in in the field of urban planning in general. So I guess um, I'm wondering outside of climatopias, when we're looking at systems that aren't as maybe equal or egalitarian, what is the role of inhabitants and indigenous people in uh, urban planning in general? And kind of what does that look like? Yeah, well, I think we're starting to see, thankfully, a, a shift in recognizing, you know, for inhabitants of these places, original inhabitants of these places um, and spaces where we are creating cities. And there are a couple of design projects and um, kind of city making projects or neighborhood making projects, perhaps is a better scale, um, that are thinking really, you know, seriously about what access and right 
a right to the city means for people who previously lived on those lands um, and so on. So there's a couple of projects. There's one in uh, Melbourne in Australia called Nightingale that is, you know, has a ballot system for housing in this new development area. It's a very inclusive participatory project. And they're thinking about, you know, every 20% of the housing um, availability is guaranteed. There's a priority ballot for indigenous peoples and other minority groups who might not have access. So there's people are starting to think about this. And I'm really, really glad to see it because it's high time that we account for a lot of these injustices that have been, you know, a big part of our, our past collectively. And when I think about Utopia for Whom, it's often about who's at the table in designing these projects. And so this is why participatory design has become a big part of my work and uh, understanding both the opportunities, but also the challenges and, and even the failures of participatory design, because there's a lot of fanfare around participation these days. And it's not always what people claim it to be. What is true participation? What is true ownership over a design? And a lot of the projects I have looked at might nominally be participatory, but when you actually look at how deep that participation went, did they just hold one or two focus groups or design charrettes and call it good? Yeah, in some cases that that was all they did. And, and that, to me, that's not truly participatory or uh, you know, inviting everybody in throughout the design process. So we need to be critical even thinking in thinking about what participation means for a lot of these projects and how we can um, seed these more uh, kind of collaborative roots in these projects early, early on so that it doesn't become an afterthought. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. That is definitely something that's very important to be considering when it comes to urban planning in general. Um, another aspect of this kind of idea of the policies, who the policies are for, the underlying motivations of policies in uh, urban geography is kind of the um, idea of greenwashing in the city environment interface. So I guess, can you just give us a brief overview of what is greenwashing versus true sustainability when it comes to urban design? Yeah, so greenwashing we see and hear about in a lot of different sectors. Um, it's, it is, I feel like there are a few places that are immune to it. I think that, in fact, I, don't, I can't even really think of, of any. Um, it is, it has permeated every part of our society because we know that we need to be thinking, you know, more holistically about our, our consumption and our general, you know, the way our societies run. Um, and so when we, when people start making bold claims about what products or services are doing in terms of sustainability, um, but that are not monitored or evaluated over time, this is when we start entering the territory of greenwashing. And I think those are actually two really key parts of greenwashing is monitoring and evaluation, or otherwise known as M&E. Um, when you make a claim about being sustainable or your products being XYZ and doing XYZ good for the environment, you have to be able to back that up with data. And you also have to show over the long term that that's not being undone somewhere else down the line. So greenwashing uh, in the built environment, I think a good example is kind of what I had mentioned earlier, where you're saying that it's a carbon neutral city, but you've completely failed to account for all of the carbon emissions that have gone into creating that city in the first place. Or you haven't thought at all about what's going to happen, um, you know, maintaining that building for the next 100 years. And then on top of that, I think there's real doubts about what sustainability in the built environment means. Like is throwing trees on the buildings, the facades of buildings green, making a building green? 
I mean, maybe literally <laughs> it's making it green. <laughs> yes. And that has a lot of benefits for cooling and, you know, making buildings, um, spaces for other insects and, and creatures alongside human life. And so there's definitely benefits to it. But if you're starting to make big claims about carbon sequestration and things like that, when you put trees on balconies, then I think you're starting to enter greenwashing territory. So there's a lot of greenwashing going on. And a lot of it is made um, is is exacerbated by the powerful ability to render these images that look spectacular. And half the time when you see some of these climatopias in in visual, you know, whether that's on Design or Design Boom or some of these websites, you can't help but think, wow, who wouldn't want to live there? It's they're so beautiful. They look like they look like video games or these kind of sci-fi futures that are avatar-like and they're gorgeous. But the, the question is, is it really, is it just a visual or is it really baked into the project long-term? And the part I find fascinating about my research, and this was kind of the like rude awakening I had in doing this work was that I started all of this research being very captivated and skeptical of those, those renders, those beautiful flashy images. And then by the time I started doing my analysis around some of these projects, the ones that were scoring the highest looked nothing like that. They didn't, they were not anywhere close to as visually spectacular. And so it was like, it was a very humble housing cooperative that was, you know, somewhere in, you know, the Philippines or Europe or wherever. And I, I was like, wow, this doesn't, it doesn't have that same fan visual fanfare. And yet those are the projects that are doing a lot more in terms of sustainability at the end of the day. And those are the projects we need to be elevating. And so in some of the conversations I've had in my research, there have been people saying, you know, the the kind of quote, good climatopias have a PR problem. They they need the same, um, you know, muscle power behind some of the PR as some of these visual uh, climatopias that are so spectacular and glossy. But then does that, you know, it's like, it's a question of, does that actually like, you know, are we just suckers for novelty and good <laughs> visuals? Well, I think there's totally truth to that. But how do we balance that with projects that are really doing the work? Mm -hmm. And on the subject of those uh, projects, um, what are some examples of truly sustainable practices that cities and, and climatopias have employed that is not just like a greenwashed marketing PR gimmick? One of the projects that I really love um, won the Pritzker Prize. Well, the firm won the Pritzker Prize. Uh, uh, in 2021, the French couple Anne Lacaton and Jean-Philippe Vassal, based uh, in France, and they do a lot of work on retrofitting social housing and putting in what they call winter gardens. So taking a, a social housing building and from the exterior adding on these very large um, open balconies that not only support energy efficiency, but that you know really expand the space of the apartments, open up light um, and quality of life without removing the inhabitants from their homes along the way. So that would be an example of a climatopia that I think is just doing it, doing a spectacular job at tackling kind of both the social and physical dimensions of resiliency that we, that we need. Um, otherwise there are many projects. I just came back from a two month research uh, sort of field experience over in across Europe, looking at different housing cooperatives and alternative economic models of housing. Um, they tend to be much more advanced in Europe um, than perhaps here in North America. Although in Canada too, we see we see a lot of this as well. Um, 
but projects like La Borda in Barcelona was the one that I mentioned. That's the housing co-op made of mass timber. By mass timber, what I mean is uh, using cross-laminated timber to, to build cities and skyscrapers even. And those buildings are ideally meant to be carbon sinks because they store carbon um, in the in the material rather than concrete, for example, which does the exact opposite. But La Borda in Barcelona, that was a new build. It wasn't necessarily a retrofit, but nonetheless, the um, both social and physical components of resilience are accounted for thinking about intergenerational aspects. You know, how do people share spaces? What does that mean? Um, you know, and then of course, the materiality of the building and energy efficiency and so on is, is deeply accounted for. Um, there were a couple of others that I visited across Zurich, uh, uh, in the city of Zurich in Switzerland, that are more urban cooperative housing uh, buildings that have a similar model. So there's a number of projects that range really in scale and size. Now we're starting to see a lot of eco districts, some some mass timber eco districts. So there's there's a lot uh, there's a lot of different smaller scale projects. I have yet to see a full-blown like true city scale master plan city kind of addressing climate change that I think is really doing it super well. Um, so if anybody listening has or knows of anything, I certainly welcome any uh, any links or anything like that. Please feel free to find me on, on the internet and send me any ideas and, and concepts you've come across because those I'm really interested in. And I, I haven't found any that are making me inspired to say that like full-blown master planned cities are are the way of the future as it relates to um climatopias now i could i could be missing some and i'm sure we will see a lot more attempts at it moving forward um but i tend to find more success in the smaller scale projects kind of on the neighborhood or not or building level Mm -hmm, for sure. So the path towards environmental sustainability is most certainly not going to be quick and easy and neither are the solutions, right? So looking ahead, what would you anticipate would be the future of urban design uh, in response to the climate crisis? I think that future involves some pretty serious policy changes. So not just thinking about designing our way out of the problem, but getting to the core of political and economic changes that have to support that movement. And I know that's not as fun and sexy and appealing as building a really cool futuristic uh, structure, but I think that they are equally, if not more important dimensions of all of this process that we need to really focus on. Um, and by that, I mean thinking about who has access to certain resources and opportunities for housing, for example. We are in the midst of a major global housing crisis, and how are we going to redesign policy to make sure that people have places to live and have, you know, safe, accessible cities to live in. So that for me is a really big part of this. And I'm, I'm not, I am absolutely no policy expert. I'm really just starting to dive into that territory because it's emerged as a key point in all of this research on climatopias, um, you know, that, that came out of my first foray into this space, beginning with like the visuals. And that really was where I started because I was so amazed by all of these really flashy designs and these draw these renders and these visualizations. And I thought, okay, is anybody critiquing and analyzing this? And then when you start doing that, you realize that what, what needs to support the best practices are policy changes, financial mechanisms, like the finances are a huge part of this. Um, there's also, I've been doing a lot of interviews with different designers and architects and planners uh, over the last couple of months, 
for my research. And one of the things that many people have said is that we we need to like the financing block are so huge because they're everybody is so risk averse. And when we talk about housing and designs for climate change, we need to innovate and come up with different models and try out different things, some of which are going to fail. There's no question about it. But how do we create space for coming up with new models and designs? So when I think about the future of urban design and responding to climate change, it's really about allowing for um, some, in, you know, more innovation and opportunities for, for, trying things out. And I've seen a lot of cooperative housing and other housing initiatives do a really uh, good job of this and trying, you know, trying to do it on their own because it's so hard to find financial support to experiment. So I think the financial policy and kind of governance angles of this are going to be huge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And what would you say are the some of the biggest challenges that you see lying ahead for urban planners and architects and geographers and just overall inhabitants of these cities? What are the the biggest challenges when it comes to uh, like the response to climate change? Well, one is not getting distracted by novelty. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like we have a lot of the answers and solutions we need. We know what we need to do. It's just a matter of implementing them and thinking about how to implement them at scale. And by scale, I don't mean just at a master city, master planned city level, but how do we make many different smaller scale housing initiatives that are really responsive to the needs of their community in the, in the local, in a local way, not necessarily like at a master planned, everything kind of top down. Um, so scaling, not at the level of like making a project so huge, the building, the, the, the design, the, the single project so huge, but really how do we scale, um, you know, different smaller projects as well across big regions that we know are working well. Um, So I think that that's one of them. Also um, trying to do more monitoring and understanding what's working and what's not working. And the way we can track that is by collecting data and being invested in projects and communities that are are started and and not pulling away after 10 years and saying, okay, well, now this project's done, we're on to the next. Like, what does long-term investment and commitment on the part of developers, on the part of um, financiers, what does that look like? And how can we integrate that into city-making projects for the future so that we can understand what to do and what not to do? Um, to me, those are just absolutely critical for any sustainable projects in the future. Mm-hmm, yeah, definitely. And Finally, do you have any closing words about your research in Climatopias and the response of uh, urban design and adaptation? Climatopias are such a fascinating uh, part of society today and how like there's such a long history between architecture and utopia going back, you know, hundreds of years. And so it's not a new phenomenon, I think is what I want to say. Like our impulse to think about better futures has been there since the dawn of time. And I, I, I want to continue to support that wild, out of the box, innovative, creative thinking. I think we need that now more than ever. It's really just a matter of making sure the energy is being directed toward the places that need it the most. And in a way that doesn't um, allow some people to stand on the heads of others. And that is for me, the the part of climatopia that I'm really trying to nail down and understand is how can we make these futures? How can we be big thinkers and cr- creative thinkers and um, you know 
imagine better futures for a bigger population and not just for a small few set of people. So um, I just want to say, yeah, that it's it's a it's a very diverse and interesting and fascinating topic. Um, there, there's a lot of potential pitfalls and snake pits. And so trying to navigate that landscape um, is is not easy. But I think it means not throwing out the baby with the bathwater. And in my work, I try and really engage with everybody on this spectrum of people from, you know, designing floating cities of the future to desert projects, to housing co-ops, to, um, you know, really small buildings that are are thinking about the, the housing crisis and affordability. So it's, I think we need to keep everybody at the table and do it in a way that doesn't ostracize that type of big thinking. But at the same time, helps course correct where needed. Mm -hmm, For sure. It is definitely a very challenging and interdisciplinary topic in general, but that's also, I think, what makes it so interesting and so fascinating to study. It's been a wild ride. (laughs) (laughs) And I think with that, we'll uh, bring our conversation to a close. But thank you so much, Alize, for joining us here on the McGill International Review podcast and for bringing all these ideas about about climate change and urban design and sustainability and your research at Climatopias to our uh, review. Thank you so much for being here. I re- we really all really my pleasure. Really really Thank you so much, and so great to be back on a podcast at my, um, you know, at my alma mater. It was at mm-hmm. McGill that I first uh, got a lot of my inspiration for, um, you know, my interest in geography and urban planning and so on. So super happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Mm-hmm.